Thinking aloud. Conversations on the leading edge of knowledge and discovery with psychologist Jeffrey Mishlove. Hello and welcome. I'm Jeffrey Mishlove. Today we'll be exploring the Metamorphosis of Plants written in 1790 by Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, the great poet, playwright, novelist, statesman, theater director, and critic who was also a great scientist. My guest is Rolf Sattler, who is an emeritus professor of biology at McGill University in Montreal, Canada, and a fellow of the Royal Society of Canada. He is a specialist in plant morphology and is the author of the award-winning book, Organogenesis of Flowers. Also, Biophilosophy, Analytic and Holistic Perspectives as well as nearly a hundred scientific papers. He's taught a course on biology and Zen at the Naropa Institute in Colorado and has also given an invited lecture on the life sciences and spirituality in honor of the Dalai Lama's 60th birthday. His newest book is Science and Beyond Toward Greater Sanity Through Science, Philosophy, Art and Spirituality. Rolf lives in Ontario, Canada, and now I'll switch over to the internet video. Welcome, Rolf. It's a real pleasure to be with you for our third interview. Well, the pleasure is mine, Jeff. I really enjoyed our previous interviews and I'm very much looking forward to this one. Well, this one will be a little bit different because we're talking about a historical figure, Johann Wolfgang von Goethe, who lived in the latter half of the 18th century into the early part of the 19th century. And I think it's fair to say, at least when I grew up studying German in high school, I, I'm pretty sure Goethe was regarded as one of the very greatest of all German thinkers. Oh, yes, definitely. I think what uh, Shakespeare is to the English, Goethe is to the Germans. Or what Dante is to the Italians, Goethe is to the Germans. <laughs> yes. He's largely remembered as a poet and a, a dramatist and a novelist. His, his work, Faust, for example, is considered one of the great classics of global dramatic literature. Yes, yes. But he regretted that he was not equally recognized as a scientist because he considered his scientific investigations as important as his uh, uh, dramatic work and poetry. I think it's very interesting that somebody who would have attained the very heights of poetic and dramatic and literary insights also delved into science. And I, my best guess is that this would make his approach to science very different from that of most other scientists. His empiricism or his empirical approach is often referred to as a delicate empiricism in contrast to the common empiricism, which is not so delicate, which could at times even be considered violent. So uh, Goethe's delicate empiricism emphasizes empathy with the object one studies and um, intuition and uh, also uh, imagination and uh, a merging of, uh, of the observer and the observed. So it, it's, it's very different from, uh, from ordinary empiricism where the emphasis is on a hypothesis that then is, is, is tested through facts and uh, observations. Um, there's a modern uh, geneticist, actually a Nobel laureate, uh, Barbara McClintock. Uh, she also studied her objects. Uh, she studied mainly uh, corn. Uh, uh, 
she also emphasized that she she was merging with her objects when she was studying them and she referred to uh, having a feeling for the organism so this is very different from uh, ordinary approach to science which which at times uh, often can be rather more or less violent so for this reason yeah goethe stands out and one actually refers to goethe in science Goethean science, um, which uh, which refers to this delicate uh, empiricism, but then at the same time I should also mention that Goethe was not just caught in in that kind of approach. He also recognized the uh, the more common approach, so he embraced both, and that's very characteristic for Goethe. I think he was not just one-sided, just caught in one view, one worldview. He embraced so many. In fact, a colleague of mine in France, uh, Gérard Cusset, he referred to, I quote, the all-embracing Goethe. So that, I think, is very characteristic for Goethe. And unfortunately, this is often not seen. There are many uh, modern um, uh, philosophers and scientists when they think of Goethe, they just think of their delicate empiricism, which is very important. Another thing that was very important to Goethe is what he called um, intuitive judgment. Intuitive judgment means, again, like uh, a merging with the object and an emphasis on intuition. And then he thought that through this uh, merging, he could actually intuit the the idea the essence behind the form and so in the in this sense he is an essentialist but again he, he's not only an essentialist he he even deconstructed his essentialism at times and so i think one could even consider him a forerunner of postmodernism perspectivism because he could see so many perspectives and he could see that each one is somewhat limit, limited and needs other um, perspectives to be more inclusive, become more inclusive, more comprehensive. So uh, this view you've just described as perspectivism, uh, I understand that that's a term that was actually coined by Friedrich Nietzsche. Yes, yes, it was coined by Nietzsche. Uh, but I think there were perspectivists before Nietzsche. He just coined the term and he emphasized, of course, very often, very much perspectivism. But as I just said, Goethe can also be considered a perspectivist and other philosophers long before him. Even Plato, uh, I think one could consider a perspectivist because what we normally uh, consider Platonic which refers to his um, idea, the idea of eternal forms that that don't change and that uh, that are the real essence of things. This is one idea he had, and 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 which I think he even uh, he was critical about it, and 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 even. Um, forgot about it at the end of his life. And yet that, that's all we, many people know about uh, Plato. And so he, he embraced also many different, different perspectives. Uh, uh, in fact, um, Whitehead said, you probably know that quote, that uh, uh, the whole of Western philosophy is just footnotes on Plato. So, uh, yeah, perspectivism started very early very early. And unfortunately, what's often forgotten, like with Goethe, is that one of the predominant ideas is considered to be characteristic of him, and the others are ignored or forgotten or not recognized, which I think is very unfortunate. I'm not sure that I understand perspectivism completely, but I have heard the idea expressed that there is no such thing as a privileged perspective, that every perspective is uh, equal in the sense that they all represent the you know, point of view of the beholder. Yes, but 
I wouldn't say that they are equal. I think one perspective could be much more comprehensive than another one. Yet the, the, the less comprehensive one could show something that the more comprehensive one doesn't show. I often use as an example, uh, near Montreal, where I lived for a long time, we have a mountain. And uh, if you take an aerial view of that mountain, of course, you can see a lot more than if you just stand on one side where it's very steep and on the other side, where it's very gently sloping. So these would be different perspectives, whereas uh, each one, of course, valid to some extent, but dependent on the, on the standpoint, on the perspective. So if one takes an aerial view, one can see both uh, the, the steep uh, incline and the gentle one. And so that perspective is more comprehensive. But then there is a gorge there. And I think this gorge you cannot see from a from an aerial view. So that perspective of the gorge, which is a narrow perspective, is not revealed in the very broad one. And so it also has a certain validity. So I would say all perspectives, whether broad, comprehensive, or narrow, have a certain validity. I was first introduced to Goethe in a serious way through the work of Rudolf Steiner. Now, Steiner is, is a fascinating figure because he was a, an academic philosopher, but he's mostly remembered as a mystic and, and the father of the a school of thought known as anthroposophy, which is basically esoteric, Western esotericism. And Steiner studied the Goethe archives in particular. I think he worked on Goethe's scientific writings. And to my understanding, Goethe's scientific writings are right at the very heart of the anthroposophical teachings of Rudolf Steiner. Would, would you agree with that? Oh, yes, I agree with that very much. But unfortunately, Steiner also had a very one-sided view of Goethe, because to him, Goethe was just delicate empiricism, intuitive judgment, and uh, he did not see that Goethe also embraced other uh, points of views, other worldviews, and so on. So I think it's very unfortunate that Steiner, who really uh, promulgated Goethe very much, uh, reinforced this one-sidedness. Unfortunate, I think. The point that you make in an essay that I've, I've read, as a matter of fact, I believe it was a keynote address at a symposium sponsored by the anthroposophists, is that Goethe also had a deep appreciation of mechanistic thinking. Yes, yes. I mean, he was, he was more drawn towards the organic, uh, or organismic thinking, definitely. But he would not discount completely mechanistic thinking. He, he said there's also a role for that. And in fact, one can discover many things through mechanistic thinking. So again, in this respect, Goethe was a perspectivist. And although he was more drawn to one, he still recognized that there was a place for the other one too. And Steiner would not admit that, I think. Steiner would just emphasize the organismic and uh, holistic uh, tendency that, of course, was very strong in Goethe. Now, the organist, uh, organismic tendency that you referred to, or the holistic tendency, is, would you say that's the same as understanding that the universe itself is alive? I'm not sure whether I would say that, but uh, the universe is a whole, is, is one integrated whole. And uh, that's very different from uh, mechanism according to which it consists of uh, separate parts that interact with each other. Maybe what I'm trying to get at might be better described as animism. Yes, and... Uh, Animism, Goethe also embraced animism. <laughs> For Goethe, everything was animated, and he even referred to a world soul. So, yes, uh, that's another perspective that is very much uh, recognized by Goethe. 
Your professional career is as a, a plant morphologist, and as I recall earlier, you, you told me that Goethe is considered the father of plant morphology. I would say one of them, uh, because there was also, uh, there were others who were, I think, equally influential. Uh, for example, A.P.D. Candol, uh, a contemporary of Goethe, who was born in Geneva in Switzerland and then moved to, to France, to Paris, I think. Uh, he developed uh, an idea very similar or in one way maybe almost identical to what Goethe proposed in his Metamorphosis of Plants. So, and there were forerunners also, but uh, many, many um, contemporary morphologists uh, who appreciate Goethe they would consider Goethe as the real father, and probably because they don't know enough about um, De Candolle and, and others. So. But uh, his work, uh, his little book, uh, The Metamorphosis of Plants, actually at first he, he, he called it an attempt to explain the metamorphosis of plants. Later on, he just called it the metamorphosis of plants. This this booklet has has had an enormous influence, and up to the present time, because um, in the 20th century, one German morphologist, uh, Wilhelm Troll, who uh, was extremely influential not only in Germany but uh, in Europe and uh, worldwide, he took over. Uh, Goethe's uh, idea that he, which he proposed in his uh, booklet, and then uh, an American, a very influential American morphologist, um, Donald Kaplan, who taught uh, at the University of California at Berkeley, he adopted also that view. Maybe he was not an essentialist because he was interested in evolution, but he used the same categories as Goethe in his uh, original work. And uh, so up to the present time, morphology is still dominated by this view and by these categories that he introduced in his essay. One of the concepts that Steiner emphasized very much in Goethe's writings is the notion of the urpflanz or the archetypal plant. I guess that would be consistent with the notion of essentialism, that there's some sort of or, or a platonic ideal underlying each plant. Exactly, yes, that's the urplant uh, is an essential form, really, and all the plants we observe are manifestation of this essential form. And again, a lot of emphasis has been placed on this idea of the urplant, and Goethe referred to it very few times, very little, even in his Metamorphosis of Plants. As far as I know, he did not refer to urplant. Uh, so that's an interesting idea, but an um, interesting thing. But um, in his uh, Metamorphosis of Plants, he referred to an essential form, namely the leaf. The leaf was uh, to him an essential form. And uh, so in that sense, his uh, metamorphosis of plant really reflected, was based on essentialism. And when he refers to the leaf, he refers to all the lateral appendages of a plant. In a plant, you have a stem, and then on the stem, you get first the seed leaves, then the foliage leaves, then uh, in, when you get to the flower, the sepals, the petals, the stamens, the carpels, all of these are lateral appendages, and Goethe called all of them leaves. And to them, to him, uh, they were all the same organ. All of them were essentially the same organ. They just manifested differently. So you can see uh, a very essentialistic view that he proposed in his um, Metamorphosis of Plants. And in the history of Goethe, there's a famous incident in which he 
met uh, another great German author, Schiller, and the two of them spent an evening together discussing the uh, Urplant. And uh, as I recall, the story goes that, that Schiller got indignant and he said to Goethe, that's not an observation, it's just an idea. And Goethe responded by saying, no, it's more than just an idea, I can see it. Yes, exactly. Yes, that's 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 typical for Goethe that he he thought through looking at a plant or at forms he could intuit the idea behind it, and uh, and Schiller, of course, like Kant, debated that this is possible because according to them uh, there is always uh, a duality between what's observed through the senses and what is thought, the ideas. And um, it's interesting, when um, Goethe wrote only a short essay on, um, on um, intuitive judgment, in which he, as I, as I said already, in which he thought that he could, from sensory appearance, uh, sensory perception, he could intuit the idea. But just one year after he wrote um, that essay on intuitive judgment, he came to a very different conclusion. He recognized that there is actually, there remains a conflict between observation through the senses and, be and between uh, the thought and the idea. And he, I quote, he wrote, the, the dual between the perceived and the ideated remains forever unresolved. So he contradicted his uh, his idea of an of intuitive judgment, and it is interesting. Then he 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 said to alleviate this conflict, <laughs> uh, he took flight into po to poetry, and and then he concluded that nature's most worthy interpreter is art. That's an interesting statement. These are the kinds of uh, quotations you don't, you don't find in the literature. I haven't come across them. I got them directly from Goethe. And I find it's unfortunate that this is so often um, neglected. And this again shows, you know, that although he was so much attracted to intuitive judgment, um, he recognized well, that there is a problem, and that this problem remains unresolved. And so that may be a resolution, if any, is, is, is art through art. You know, Rolf, I've done a number of interviews with contemporary scientists, typically in psychology, but not exclusively, also parapsychology and even physics, on the topic of synesthesia, the ability, for example, to hear color or to see sounds, that is the sensory input from what we think of as one uh, source becomes displayed in the mental sensorium differently than most people experience it. And it would seem that this might account for the, uh, the paradox that Goethe found himself in. And as I read through your paper, I noticed that you refer to yourself as someone who sees auras, which is also uh, often attributed to synesthesia. Yes, yes. Oh, yeah, that's definitely very interesting. Uh, and, but even that does not necessarily reveal uh, the idea or the essence behind everything and in fact there may be no essence and uh, I, I have been very critical of essentialism because I think a lot of empirical research especially also research carried out in my lab <laughs> Uh, showed that uh, there are not distinct essences. Uh, it's a, a continuum between everything, it seems. So you cannot uh, say uh, a leaf has this essence and the stem has another essence and the root has another essence. Even Goethe at, at one point um, wrote, um, all is leaf. That means even the stem and the root is leaf. They just have a different 
a different uh, symmetry. Uh, stems and leaves are radial, whereas uh, stems and roots are radial, whereas leaves are flattened. So, so then, if all is leaf, then of course there is no longer a separate essence of the leaf and the stem and the root. And so he, he in a way, deconstructed essentialism, which I find fascinating. And this is very often not known or not uh, recognized. Now, I, I gather, especially from your work, that the, the idea of essentialism goes back probably to the pre-Socratic philosophers like uh, Heraclitus, who, who might have said everything is fire, or another one would say everything is air, everything is water, to try and uh, find out what is the essential element from which everything else arises. Mm -hmm. Yes, but if we say everything is fire, like if we say everything is leaf, <laughs> I don't see so much a problem there. I see the problem when we distinguish different essences like leaf, stem, and truth, because then we fragment one whole into separate essences. Even with Plato, I see a problem when he, when he refers to three major essences, the true, the good, and the beautiful. Uh, if we separate these three, well... <laughs> Uh, I, I think we fragment, and uh, I, I see a problem there. I see a general problem in fragmentation, because, as you know, I'm very holistically oriented, and I think we have more and more evidence for interconnectedness of everything. And uh, so I found this interconnectedness through my scientific research, and, of course, uh, other scientists, especially physicists, quantum physicists, have found this interconnectedness through their research. But I also find this wholeness through my meditation, I must say. So I find it objectively through research and subjectively through my um, meditation. And so I find it very convincing, you know, that there are not separate essences that uh, that fragment uh, the whole of reality. People who work in your discipline of plant morphology have a bit of a different approach to the world than other scientists. And maybe this has something to do with Goethe's influence or something to do with uh, the time that you spend studying plants. Yes, maybe one reason is that we are very much... Um, we emphasize very much the visual aspect, uh, uh, and uh, for uh, whereas in, for example, chemistry, uh, you you don't observe the molecules and the and, and the atoms. You see reactions, and so in a way, a morphologist maybe is closer to. <laughs> to things than, than a chemist, I, I'm not sure. But I'm certainly, I've been attracted to, to morphology because uh, I, I am fascinated by the manifoldness of forms, plant forms, and um, the visual aspect. And, and be becoming totally immersed in that can actually lead beyond it. And so not necessarily to essences, but beyond maybe to the wholeness of everything. So, yeah, I think there is something to, morphologists that, to morphology that maybe other more abstract sciences don't offer. And if I may, I'd like to come back to the uh, statement that you made in, in your paper on Goethe that you also happen to see auras. And I wonder, has that actually been a factor in the scientific work that you do? When you look at a plant, do you see something different about the plant? Well, I can see auras around plants, but uh, I developed this ability only very late in my life, actually after my retirement. It was interesting. I, for many years, I taught a course in philosophy of biology. And there I, I told my students that I uh, that some people can see auras. And, uh, <laughs> and they asked me, can you? And I had to admit, no, I cannot. And they found that a bit strange, you know, I'm talking about things that I cannot see myself. So, uh, yes, uh, I think as a result of um, 
more meditative practice, I eventually could see auras. But I actually don't attach a lot of importance to that. Uh, although I find it interesting from an um, from a point of view of philosophy of science. Um, you know that in in science, objectivity is considered very important. And what is objectivity? Well, many people think something is objective if it's real, but we don't really know what is real. So this notion of objectivity, of objectivity as being reality, is not very useful in science. I think what 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 we what we mean by objectivity in science is shared per, per, uh, perception. So if we see the same thing, then we consider that objective. But what we consider the same thing when we what. When we see the same thing, that depends on our state of consciousness. So that means most people who are in a similar state of consciousness, they can see the same thing. But someone else who is in a different, maybe extraordinary state of consciousness can see something else. So if everyone else could achieve this state of consciousness, then this, seeing auras, for example, would become objective. <laughs> so you can see that's very relative in a way, what's considered objective, because it's dependent on our state of consciousness. And you may know Charles Tart, um, uh, who studied a lot of also uh, parapsychological phenomena, and he suggested that we, we should have a state-specific state sciences. So if you are in one state, then you can have a certain, certain kind of science. If you're in another state, then you have another kind of science. And I think the common science that we have nowadays is very relies very much on an ordinary state of consciousness uh, and unfortunately disregards uh, a lot extraordinary states of consciousness. Well, incidentally, Charles Tart was one of my own dissertation committee members on my doctoral program at Berkeley and I do have an interview with him on uh, state-specific science. I'm going to link to it. Our viewers can uh, look at the upper right of their screen and uh, link to that interview. You're certainly right. In your essay, you, you list nine different worldviews, and you suggest that Goethe is all-embracing. You can find all of those worldviews in Goethe. Well, as you know, in mysticism, one emph the emphasis is on oneness. And so Goethe very often uh, referred to oneness and uh, th that we are one with everything. And in that sense, I consider him a mystic. And he even went beyond that. Uh, I think he also was a non-dualist because uh, he said... Um, I have that somewhere uh, written down. He said, know the one as the many. So he didn't make this dichotomy between the one and the many. To him, the one and the many were again one. So that to me is also highly significant. As I recall, you also draw upon Buddhism and, and the notion that emptiness is form and form is emptiness. Yes, that's also non-dualist uh, because uh, they are not different. And uh, that, uh, to me, is very important, this recognition, because uh, there is often uh, many people are called in, caught in dualisms. And, uh, and, and this, to, again, to me, is a fragmentation, which I don't think is real. And yet we seem to live in a, a, a universe where we see separate objects everywhere. I'm sitting in a studio. I'm looking at a computer screen. Your image is on the screen. There are cameras and lights, and they all seem distinct from each other. I think most people assume in, in the everyday world that it is full of a multiplicity of objects. People who can see auras, 
they they don't see objects uh, separate as separate entities because through auras everything is interconnected and even in science we know that um, we have uh, um, infrared radiation beyond our bodies and uh, so so in both uh, science and in uh, personal experience one can actually see beyond the separateness but uh, in most cases uh, we, we see things uh, as separate and uh, we also we also grow up and are educated in this way um, because I think language also reinforces the separateness because uh, we we refer to this and to that and give a name to it and to you and to me and all uh, language really fragments very much and, and and in this way it reinforces this notion of separateness and and of course we've done a previous interview on general semantics and the work of Alfred Korzybski, where that concept is emphasized, and I know uh, Korzybski's been a big influence on you, like Goethe. Yes, yes, oh yes. I think uh, I think it's really has been uh, very important, uh, and to me, it's so evident that language is limited. Language is useful; we need it, but it's limited, and we have to go beyond language and. Reality cannot be described through through language, as Kosipsky said. It's uh, the unspeakable, or uh, I refer to the unnameable, and uh, and then of course you come to silence, and uh, and so it's very important to be silent. And silence also was important to Goethe. It was very important to um, Kosipsky, and it's of course very important to many meditators and uh, people who go out into nature and feel the awe in nature. They become silent. I once went with a little child, very talkative child, into a wood forest, and I was so surprised. Suddenly, he said, "Oh, that's not talk. Just, just listen. Just watch." So it's amazing. It's amazing, really. One of the interesting things about Goethe is uh, he's considered one of the fathers of the German Romantic movement, and it was very important for all the German Romantics, as I understand it, to be in nature and to merge with nature, to become one with nature. It was really, uh, I think one might say, a large-scale mystical movement. Yes, oh yes, I think he was a real uh, romantic in a way, because feeling was very important to him, not only thinking. And uh, to me, that's very characteristic of uh, romantics. Um. And, and another thing about Goethe we haven't talked about, I wonder if you have any thoughts about his work on optics. I know Goethe and Newton both looked at optics and the nature of light and color and came up with very different conclusions. Yes, uh, unfortunately, I do not know too much about his optics, um, but uh, I, it's a very different view from Newton's. And uh, there are scientists, for example, like the physicist Heisenberg, who, who, who said that these are complementary views. One cannot say that Newton was right, Goethe was wrong, or vice versa. They complement each other, and that to me makes a lot of sense. Um, before we come to a close of our interview, if I may, I would like to summarize once more Goethe's views on plants. Uh, yes, he he had uh, he had contrary to what many people think that he just uh, proposed a root, stem leaf model of plants, which I call a Trinitarian model. Trinitarian models seem to be very attractive, very appealing. I don't know why, but you find trinities uh, all over. You find them in molecular biology, DNA, RNA, protein. You find them uh, in religion. You find them all over. And so 
Goethe, one of his uh, views of plants was a Trinitarian view that plants consist of three basic kinds of organs, uh, roots, stems, and leaves. But that was only one of his views. He had three, at least three other ones. And uh, one other one is already proposed, the second one in his Metamorphosis of Plants, because he recognized that compound leaves, I have one here, uh, maybe, can you see that? Mm. Yeah, this Beautiful. is a, a compound leaf of sumac. Goethe, not not in his uh, uh, metamorphosis of plants, but later on said that this is actually not just a leaf, it's more like a branch. Now, if this is a branch, then of course it's not essentially a leaf. And so this contradicts what he, what he said, what he wrote in his metamorphosis of plants. And this is very interesting, this idea that compound leaves... Um, tend to be more like branches, was further developed by Casimir de Candol at the end of the 19th century and in the 20th century, especially by Agnes Arbor, who referred to the partial shoot theory of the leaf, that the leaf is a partial shoot or uh, compound leaves, partial shoot or partial branch. And again, Goethe was... Goethe recognized that already, not in his metamorphosis of plants, but uh, in, in other comments. So uh, that is a, another view he had, which coincides very much with Agnes Arbor's view that is not very popular, uh, even to the present day. So that's a, a second view he had. And uh, the third view I mentioned already when he said all is leaf, uh, that, that there's only one kind of form and that manifests in different ways as roots, as stems, as leaves, what have you. So that also is, uh, is uh, very much neglected. And actually when he proposed that, he, he did not say, this is my intuition. He proposed it as a hypothesis. So which shows that he also embraced the, the hypothetical uh, general thinking of mainstream science. And then a fourth view is interesting. Um, maybe I can illustrate that with this passport branch. Uh, uh, he he had two different definitions in his metamorphosis of plants, two def different definitions of a leaf. One, the common one that is usually only known, is this that a, a leaf is this part. The stem is this here. Can you see it? Yeah. The stem is this here, and then the leaf is this, and there's another leaf, and there's another leaf. But then he had a second definition of the leaf, according to which the leaf actually comprises also the stem segment below it. So everything from here to here is one leaf, and then below from here to here is another leaf. And then that means there's no longer a stem, right? There are only leaves. <laughs> <laughs> I see. So this is this is another idea he proposed. This idea one can find already in his Metamorphosis of Plants. So, so he had at least these four different views, two different views of the leaf, what's a leaf, and then uh, also this partial shoot theory and of the leaf, and then the idea that all is leaf and that there's no fragmentation at all. And... Um, Apart from his Trinitarian view, that's very strong in his Metamorphosis of Plant, these other views are really not much known. And uh, the Trinitarian view has taken over, especially because of the enormous influence of Wilhelm Troll in Germany and Donald Kaplan in America and, and, and others also. Well, you know, just as Einstein developed his theory of relativity by imagining what it would be like to be traveling uh, at the speed of light, to become a photon, essentially. Uh, I get the impression that Goethe was asking himself, what is it like to be a plant? What is it like to be a leaf? Yes, very much so. And another thing I, I want to mention that's also a very important discovery uh, by Goethe is um, 
he looked at uh, at the development of plants and how the leaves, whichever way you define them, change during the development. And so he noticed that the first leaves formed are very small. Then they become larger and larger, like, for example, even this leaf, right? And then, again, when you come to the flower, to the sepals, the sepals are much smaller again. And then the petals get larger again. Stamens get smaller again. So what he recognized are uh, phases of expansion and contraction. And I think that's a very important discovery by him and a very uh, general principle because it applies not only to plants, but I think this one could say almost it's a universal principle, contraction and expansion, these two forces. Uh, and uh, two other very important uh, concepts that he introduced was the, the idea of polarity, uh, which is, of course, also a very general uh, you could say universal uh, uh, notion uh, and phenomenon. And then uh, he introduced the idea of enhancement uh, that there's uh, during the development of the plant from the vegetative region to the flower, there is an enhancement because he, he, he considered it as a flower more developed uh, more enhanced than just the vegetative region. And this, of course, plays also a very important role in his in his uh, Faust, because, you know, striving, striving is very important in his Faust, uh, Faustian striving and towards something better, towards more, something more enhanced. So this we find in his plant morphology. And these are very general principles, I think, that are very interesting. To me, you know, I'm very interested in Taoism. They resonate very much also with Taoism and yin-yang. So that's fascinating to me. You have these opposing forces of growth and decay going on. Yes, yes. So there, there's also the, the question with regard to plants would, would be the death of a plant and, and, and that whole process. Yes, oh yes. And uh, again, it's this cyclic uh, uh, renewal from growth to decay and... and um, expansion, contraction, so this fluidity. Uh, Goethe was a very much a dynamic thinker. To him, everything was change. He said, uh, nature is eternal change. So uh, that, that was also a very important principle to him. When I visited the uh, anthropological, uh, anthroposophical center in Dornach, Switzerland, uh, what impressed me there is uh, they had programs for children and also in the Waldorf schools run by anthroposophists that uh, a young child was expected to kind of take care of a plant and to watch it grow and then to watch uh, as eventually it becomes a, an old plant and dies so that the whole process of, of growth and uh, efflorescence and then decay and death becomes sort of internalized uh, by young children. Yes, oh yes, I think that's very important and I think they do great work in this respect and uh, in this way I think we also avoid a, a sort of um, the almost paranoid view of death in our society. Death is the enormous enemy, but death is something in old age. I mean, it's something very natural, and it's very difficult uh, to accept that in, in our mainstream society. So in this respect, yeah, I think Goethe and, and, and uh, anthroposophists have made great contributions. Well, one of the other important insights that I learned uh, through anthroposophy uh, looking at Goethe was that he seemed to see a kind of parallel between the plant and the poem. 
the, the, both uh, the plant and the poem have an underlying essence. And I think Goethe's point, uh, at least as expressed through Steiner, was that this essence, the urflant, the, the archetypal plant, and, and the archetypes that underlie poetry and drama are ultimately the same. They, they come from the same, I guess you would have to call it the same ontological level of archetypes. I can see that, but uh, I'm uh, I'm a, a little bit also skeptical about archetypes. I, I, maybe archetypes are to some extent abstractions from reality. So, although they represent an important aspect of reality, I I don't consider them as ultimately real. I see. That, I guess that would mean you're not a Jungian. <laughs> Well, you know, I think he has made great contributions. And as I said, uh, he discovered an important aspect of reality. But there is still a difference to me between an aspect of reality and reality itself, which is to me the unnameable. Well, once again, Rolf Sattler, this has been a very stimulating discussion. I so much appreciate your passion for the work that you've spent your whole career on plant morphology, but also the underlying uh, dynamics and, and principles, the worldviews that support the work that you do, and, and your appreciation for the complex multiplicity of worldviews that all come together. Rolf, once again, thank you so much for being with me. Thank you, Jeff. I really appreciate immensely having this conversation with you. That was truly a wonderful conversation. Oh, yeah, I enjoyed it. I think it's, it's such a pleasure having a con an interview with you. I mean, it just flows, you know, and it goes into so many interesting uh, aspects, and it's just wonderful. And for those, uh, for those of you watching and listening, thank you for being with us.